I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Hilary Leichner. She's the author of Temporary, which was a finalist for the Center of Fiction First Novel Prize and the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award, and was long listed for the Penn Hemingway Award. Her writing has appeared in Harper's, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. She teaches at Columbia University and lives in Brooklyn, New York, and her new novel is called Terrace Story. Hillary, welcome. Hi, Maris. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. And as I warned you before we started recording, I I do find that it's a it's a tough one to talk about simply because you don't want to give too much away before <laughs> readers jump in. And yet we have to talk about this book for 30 minutes. So. <laughs> Listen, I love a challenge. I, I'm glad that we're starting talking about that because I think it's actually one of the things that I'm most interested in in writing novels is writing things that resist explanation. Uh, because if you can explain something, then why does it need to be a novel? Right. And and I think, you know, I I don't necessarily believe in spoilers. I think spoiler culture is maybe a little out of hand. Um, And there's this great saying, I don't remember who said it and I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like a book whose plot can be spoiled has already been spoiled by its plot. Right. But I do think there's something to experiencing a narrative in order with an author in the order that they intended and how things reveal themselves to you over the course of that journey. Absolutely. And yeah, I feel like even there are some nonfiction books that I read early 
And I feel so grateful that I didn't have someone else's perspective to guide me and, you know, to allow me to make my own conclusions. And uh, this book seems like a perfect example of me not wanting to tell anyone how to how to see this novel. Oh, good. That's yeah. We're inundated with interpretations of art before oftentimes before we even get to experience the art ourselves. And that feels like something very specific to the time that we live in. And it's fun to experience art first and then to look for people to talk to about it. Absolutely. So, so everyone turn off this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we're going to be very oblique. It's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start with, with some facts. Tara's story started out as just one mind-blowing short story. So how do you then expand that world to create an entire world around it? So I wrote the short story version of the novel, which is which is still intact as the first chapter in the book. I wrote that in 2017 when I was living in a very tiny apartment with my husband, about 400 square feet. You know, you couldn't go anywhere without climbing over someone. And then it was published a few years after that in spring of 2020 during things had changed (laughs) things were a little bit different yeah things were a little bit different then and the short story is about a couple Annie and Edward and their young daughter named Rose and they're living in a tiny apartment and their friend Stephanie comes over to visit and every time she comes to their apartment their closet turns into a beautiful terrace but only when she visits. So that was the premise for the short story. And then we were all stuck inside suddenly during lockdown, and it came to mean something different, this question of closeness and distance and how you could feel both claustrophobic and so far apart from everyone you care about simultaneously. And that paradox was really interesting to me. I was thinking a lot about the collective grief that we were all experiencing, and then the personal grief of losing people and the kind of distance that can't be bridged when someone is gone forever, whether because of death or anything else. Um, And so that was on my mind. And the rest of the novel started to appear to me in chunks, bit by bit. And I realized that it was not a short story any longer. And the way I've come to think about it now is that I found a novel hiding in my short story, just like Annie and Edward find a terrace hiding their apartment. So the journey of writing the book kind of mirrors the emotional journey that the characters had. I love this. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so what does, what does it mean? What What is taken away then? If if you created this novel out of the short story, what, what, <laughs> I, I guess there... At some point in the novel, in the middle of the novel, there's a a wise lacrosse player. <laughs> everyone, listen, everyone knows a wise lacrosse player. That's <laughs> He starts getting a little theoretical about what it means if someone is able to create more space. And he says, you can't make something bigger without taking away from something else. And I'm wondering if that is a truth of the novel or are you fighting against it? Like, tell me, tell me about that. 
Well, I think it's important to note that that line comes from a college student. Yes. (laughs) When I was in college, I don't know about you, I really thought I knew everything. And I was very obsessed with the ideas that I had formed about the world and how correct they were. And I think that's a character and a group of characters he's speaking to who are trying to figure out the world that they live in and trying to make meaning of it and trying to find the language to describe it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. It comes to define the emotional life of one of the characters in the book in a very specific and tragic way in that she really believes she can't have anything without hurting someone else. And it forecloses on her ability to have intimacy with anyone and to have love. In terms of writing, I think addition and subtraction is, I don't know if it's, if it's a, I don't know if it's a helpful way of thinking about manuscripts. I mean, we think about word count a lot and sure writing as an additive process, but I think, for example, the book that I wrote is always going to be bigger than the book that you read just by virtue of all the many drafts and the sentences that didn't make it into the final version. But what's also true is the book that you read is larger than the book that I wrote through the act of your reading it. So that's an equation that doesn't work. How can it be both bigger and smaller? And that contradiction, I think, is beautiful Uh, So I was exploring that both in terms of fiction and what's possible in narrative prose and also in terms of emotions and where we find happiness, where we find grief and what's lost in the kind of space between those emotions. That is a beautiful answer. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how time works or doesn't work or in the novel both for the characters and then for you as the writer of the story and how you perceived of time as as a big it's always pretty important to a story but but this one feels extra I'm a huge nerd when it comes to time in books I teach a class on it it because of that because of teaching it I think it's come to frame much of the way that I experience books that I read and things that I write as well. So it was very important to me. But it also became quickly apparent that in a book about space that appears and disappears at will and a world that's expanding and contracting, time would have to be kind of wobbly around that space as well. Um, They go hand in hand, right? And so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about how to use time to indicate the shifting parameters of the world that these characters live in. In terms of how time works for me as a writer, I don't know. I think it's so mysterious. With this book, I could say that there are things in these pages that echo emotional experiences that I've had, and I could do that thing of saying, like I did at the start of this conversation, you know, I was living in a small apartment and that's what happened and that's where the book came from. And on a certain level, that's true. But there are also things that I wrote in this book that then happened to me after writing it. It was like I spoke them into existence. And I think there's a (laughs) books 
I mean, I don't have a typewriter where I click a key and <laughs> predict the future. I don't have that going on. But I think there's a way in which books don't move forward in time. They reverberate. And the biggest evidence of that to me is that they're in conversation with books that you've never read, both because you've read the authors who have read those authors who have read other authors, and then people have read you that you don't know about. And it's like this circular continuum. And so if you're really tapped in, a book can be inspired by something that hasn't happened yet. You are doing a very good job of talking obliquely about this book. And I love it. Um, and, and I love even that the characters themselves can acknowledge um, that if they're recalling something, they're maybe not sure if the thing they're recalling happened in one specific day or if it was over time. And, and that seems like something about memory that we all experience. And yet it, it feels so not right to, to acknowledge it. I know. I know it's, but, but it's, I mean, it's the way that I experience things. I, I mean, is it the way that you experience things too? Oh, of like, course. I mean, this, time. listening to your character say that made me in an interview be able to say, I actually don't know when this happened. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, and and so you, it, oh, it's a relief to say you don't know or you don't remember or that you're not sure because I, I don't know about you, but that's kind of how I feel a lot of the time. I'm not sure. And I think what's shocking to me is that reading works the same way. I I was just talking about this with someone, but I, I never had to reread books until I became a teacher. And then you're rereading the books that you teach all the time. And you're reading students' stories multiple times and you become this kind of keeper of a palimpsest of a book. And I just, I'm never not astonished by how little I remember about not just any books, but my favorite books. And even after a third reading, there are moments that have eluded me and I can't believe I've missed them. Of course I haven't. They've just left somehow. Right, right, and I right. Think Life is the same way. I, I really believe that. And that's so interesting to me because Tara's story, I really did feel like so many of, of the different parts of the novel echo each other. And a really close reading pays off very much, um, especially by the end. Tell me, tell me about that. Oh, that's so good to hear, Maris. I, like, that means so much to me because I really did because of this, the nature of the structure and the fact that it kind of folds back on itself and it has this double helix shape. I wanted it to be amenable to a second read, you know, and a third and a fourth. I wanted there to be new things that could be discovered only on a second read and not just because a reader like me has forgotten the whole book, which is totally <laughs> fine too. Um but I wanted it to welcome rereads um, that felt that felt like a different way of thinking about fiction. Um, and it's and it's risky, too. Right. Because it means that maybe you can't have everything the first time around. 
but that feels emotionally true to me too about life. And and it, it, as a reader, it kind of it flatters me to know to to know that you trust me enough to be able to yeah. go back and 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 piece all of these things together, almost like solving a little mystery, or or not go back. You know that's okay right? too. I think like I I like the idea that it's not mine anymore. You know, and I and go back. Don't go back. Read it out of order. That might be confusing, but okay. <laughs> and it's it's not mine to read. It's yours to read. Um, it makes the world of the book larger for whatever experience you choose to have with it. But I'm really interested in fiction that requires something of me. I think there are so many ways to receive narratives now. And they're all different and they're all great. And we have just this abundance of art at our fingertips. But it means that novels have to make a claim for why they should be here. And I'm interested in a novel that, like you said, believes in me enough to allow me to be an active participant in the world of the book. And when that happens, I think that a book not only becomes a book that I've read, but it becomes an event that I've experienced in my life. And I can think about books that I, I feel that way about. I, I feel like Jane Eyre was maybe the first book I read where I felt that way. I just It was for summer reading in high school, and I stayed up all night for homework <laughs> reading it. And, and then I just immediately started reading it again after I was done. And I don't, again, I haven't read Jane Eyre in a long time. A lot of the details are lost in the mists of my brain. <laughs> but I I remember sitting in my bed with Jane, with Mr. Rochester. They were there. It was a moment that was a part of my life. It was sandwiched between the school year and camp. You know, it's, <laughs> it's something that I lived through. And I want that feeling when I read a book. I'm sometimes um, ashamed by how little I remember of the books I claim to love the most. But I guess if you can just remember the feeling you had, that can be enough. I think the feeling is the main thing. Yeah. That's like, that's, I mean, there are no people in books. There are no places. There are no events. There's just words. And so they're all letters and spaces and punctuation clustering in groups to create a feeling and so so there is nothing else but that at the end of the day well that's lovely i so one of the the feelings that i had when reading this book of course um not just the pleasure of discovery but there was also it is imbued with with dread and (laughs) from the perspective of expecting something to go wrong, understanding that everyone dies, to a greater dread and grief about the climate. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that sense of dread. Yeah, and it started from a very small place of thinking about losing the people you love. And in the opening chapter of the book, in the short story version of the book, the character who kind of owns that chapter, Annie, 
she loses the people she loves in a sort of remarkable, unbelievable fashion. It's not something that's explicable. It's not something that anyone can ever share with her. No one's going to bring her a casserole, right? That's the kind of grief that's interesting to me. It's private and it's lonely. And it's also vibrant because it's yours and yours alone. You don't share it with anyone else. I was curious about that. And so then the other characters in the book became a way of thinking about how to translate that into something that we have all experienced or will all experience. You know, we we can't all experience what Annie experiences, but we all lose family members to death, to divorce, to falling out of touch, any number of reasons. We all lose lovers because the love isn't reciprocated or because the love is reciprocated differently and it doesn't add up to something that can last. And then, of course, we're losing our planet. I never set out to write climate fiction or whatever it's called, because I feel like that's a like a marketing category on Amazon. <laughs> it's it's a way of talking about things that already exist, not a way of shaping something that doesn't. So it wasn't a thing that I set out to do, but in a book that's about loss, how could it not grow and grow into the ultimate loss, which is proof that we ever existed? Or even more than that, the idea that maybe we shouldn't exist anymore, that maybe we've lost the right to. I'm just going to sit with that for a moment. Yeah. Um, before, I, before I ask you my next question, which, which maybe is a little less profound, but I'm, I'm very curious. I've, I've seen subverted fairy tales do a lot of different work in fiction. And I'm hoping you could tell me in the in the second section of your book specifically what you get. I mean, you, let's let's not even go to the second section. Each of the four sections of the book have titles that, um, when put together, seem to indicate some sort of castle type of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. I, you know, what's so funny, Maris? I. I never even thought of that. (laughs) Like I knew, I mean, of course they are to put together one structure, but I never kind of put all the words together on a page for myself and thought about that. There are all these architectural components. There's the terrace, there's folly, which feels like this beautifully rich literary word because it's foolishness, but it's also a structure. Um, And there's Fortress, which is the section of the book that is sort of an inversion of like a Fortress of Solitude type story. Uh It's a little bit superhero inflected, but but a fortress is also what keeps everyone safe too. And then there's the last section is called Cantilever, which I think is the most kind of elliptical word in the book. Um, And I don't know if I want to say too much about what that comes to mean. But it also is, it's an architectural term that to me indicates a relationship. There's, there's, you know, there's something on one side and something on the other. That's how I came to think about it, like a bridge. But there is one section of the book that has a a miniature fairy tale sort of embedded in it. And I, I have to tell you, 
I have no idea where it came from. It was just there. And then I, and it's not based on anything. It's except for maybe like repressed musical theater plots <laughs> somewhere in the back of my head. Um, but it just, it came out and I was like, okay, this lives here now. And I have to find proof that it belongs here. And a lot of people have been asking me about it and what it means and what the intent was behind it. So I've kind of had to reverse engineer my intentions with it and figure out why I knew it had to stay there. Um, and I think what I feel about it is that so much of the book is about feelings that work in the wrong direction. So like feeling a memory from the future or feeling hope running in reverse. And I think that fables and folklore allow us to tap into a feeling of prehistory and pre-memory, the idea that you know things that happened before your own knowledge, or you feel things as memories that were not a part of your life. And that can be anything from a family story or anecdote that's passed down, you know, from grandmother to aunt to uncle to to you, um, or just things that you sense about yourself and the origin of those sensations have been lost, either because no one knows where they came from or whoever made you feel that way is gone. And that was that was interesting to me. And I think a, I think a fable lets us tap into that. Absolutely. And then of course, the novel is mostly just about real estate, though, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't everything? <laughs> I, I can only imagine having written this story and then watching the world become so much smaller and having everyone tripping over their families if they're lucky enough to, yeah. to be locked in with their families. Okay, I, I think I am not going to ask you anything more because I think we've... I think we've intrigued people. It's just the most lovely short read that you will perhaps want to read over and over again, because I know I will. So, Hillary, before we go, um, can you please recommend some books for us? I can. Yeah, I'm going to recommend some recent reads. Um, I just recently read the hero of this book by Elizabeth McCracken, which floored me. I thought it was brilliant and unforgettable. And I, I actually listened to it on audiobook, and I believe she reads the audiobook. And I, I was so taken with it. I think it's one of the most moving depictions of family. And it's not a novel. It's not a memoir. I don't really care what it is at the end. And I think that's the point. It's just... It's just wonderful. And if you can listen to it, I think um, I think it's worth your while. And I I read um, Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks, which is an old book that was yes. recently republished and was also blown away. It, it exists somewhere between the space of fiction and nonfiction. And it's so lyrical. It's practically verse. Um, and it's it's a sh it's another short object that just destroys you with the blunt force of its prose. Um, I was I I wanted there to be more, you know. 
Um, I was left wanting more at the end. So that's Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks. Those are my recommendations. They sound wonderful. Well, they I know one is. <laughs> so I will trust you that the other one is too. Um, Hillary, thank you so much. Everyone, you really want to read Tara's story. Thank you, Maris. This is a joy. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.